Hello and welcome to episode 66 of Pay-Per-View, where I review the papers and big headlines over the week and place the bets and headlines in the true context of the weekly podcast. My problems in the teeth department are fixed now, as you'll be able to hear, I'm sure. So I'm back to normal in that context anyway. So the first subject this week is, well, slavery is not just happening in countries where it's obvious people are enslaved, as with black slaves from the 1600s to the 1800s and the African slaves on the plantations and even modern examples of slavery. Slavery is defined as the condition of being legally owned by someone else and forced to work for or obey them. On that criteria, virtually everyone is enslaved to varying extents. The global population is enslaved because of the agenda of a cult, which I talk about in All Roads Lead to Israel Part 1, and this agenda requires that people be enslaved in the various ways that the human race is enslaved. One of the main ways people are enslaved is financially. The global banking system is a criminal enterprise under any other name, and is an operation in parasitising off the efforts of others. The system works by lending money which doesn't exist, called credit, and charging interest on it. The interest is never created, even as credit. I've talked about how the the money system in episode 10, and how it's designed to transfer wealth away from the population into the hands of a tiny few people, and how people losing their homes, businesses, and land is actually built into the system on purpose. Debt slavery. Oxfam said in 2016 that the richest 1% now own as much as the entire rest of the world combined, but it's not planned to stop there, as I explain in more detail in episode 31. Politics is another way people are enslaved. In many countries, people are living in a one-party state masquerading as freedom and democracy. Not that they're the same thing either. Democracy is ruled by the majority. For example, in the American elections in 2016, America was given a choice between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. Trump, as I detail in episode 63, is owned by the cult, while promising to drain the swamp during election time, even though he'd been swimming in it all his life, going back to his days as a casino magnate. And Clinton has been a stalwart for the cult, and her actions in the State Department for decades has been testament to that fact. Clinton would potentially have been far worse than Trump, although she was a harder sell than Trump. Clinton, of course, is also stunningly corrupt. Over 320 million people, and they were the choices America was given to vote for at election time. Bush administration gives us another reason why politics is not what we're told is. Because during George Bush Jr. years, his presidency as a Republican was run by a group known as neoconservatives. The Democratic Party has its own version of neocons, known by some as democons. At the next level beyond the political parties, the neocons and democons are both working to the same agenda, ultimately for the same masters. And so in this way, no matter which party leader is in power, the same controlling network, ultimately the cult, is in power. This is how one-party states can and do operate within alleged democracies. Trump's policies are largely driven by elite Zionists and the Democratic Party, which has been entirely consumed by the woke PC tyranny of the fake liberal left, is run to a large extent by an elite Zionist called George Soros. Elite Zionism, or ultra-Zionism, as some call it, answers at the next level to the cult. I talk about George Soros in episode 46, and he's an international manipulator extraordinaire, and pops up all over the place. It's really worth looking into Saris to get an idea of how one man can manipulate so much. And then, from that understanding, it's not so hard to comprehend the fact that a tiny few people, relatively, can run the world. Saris has a network which operates in a hundred countries and manipulates migration and manipulates conflict abroad. That's just one guy. So the idea that a few people can't control the world takes on a different perspective when you realise that. To even stand a chance of getting anywhere in American politics and other countries, you need to sign a pledge of allegiance to Israel. 
I talk in episode 63 about the immense influence Israel has on American politics. An article here from the New York Times. U.S. finalizes deal to give Israel $38 billion in military aid. This was published in September 2016 when Obama was still president. The United States has finalized a $38 billion package of military aid for Israel over the next 10 years, the largest of its kind ever, and the two allies plan to sign the agreement on Wednesday, American and Israeli officials said. The State Department scheduled a ceremony to formally announce the pact, which will be signed by Jacob Miguel, the acting National Security Advisor to Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu of Israel, and Thomas A. Shannon Jr., the Under Secretary of State for Political Affairs. Susan E. Rice, President Obama's National Security Advisor, who had all negotiations plans to be on hand. Of course, Obama was the second deputy prime minister of Israel, sorry, the president of America. The package represents a major commitment to Israel's security in the waning months of Mr. Obama's presidency after years of fractious relations with Mr. Netanyahu over issues like the Iran nuclear agreement. This is why Israel is in such a great position now, because with Trump, they'll get basically no resistance for reasons I explained in episode 63, although Obama was no enemy of Israel, because no president of America ever is. Mr. Netanyahu agreed to several concessions to cement the deal rather than gamble on winning better terms from the next president. The package will provide an average of $3.8 billion a year over the next decade to Israel, already the largest recipient of American aid, including financing for missile defense systems that defend against rockets fired by groups like Hezbollah and Hamas. Israel is a sliver of land with a population less than some cities. Why is it so powerful and why does it get the support from America that it gets? I answer those two questions in All Roads Lead to Israel. And while the money given over as aid to Israel keeps coming, people are sleeping on the streets in America where typhus is breaking out because America is a satellite government of Israel, especially now with Trump in power. The package will provide an average of $3.8 billion a year over the next decade to Israel, already the largest recipient of American aid, including financing for missile defense systems that defend against rockets fired by groups like Hezbollah and Hamas. Whenever it looks like there might be some peace between Israel and Palestine, there will be rockets fired from Palestine over to Israel. The idea that that happens by chance is ludicrous. It gives the impression that Israel wanted to try to get a peace agreement or a ceasefire, and then it can say, oh, well, we tried, but... Palestine keeps sending rockets over. It's all manipulated. Under a previous 10-year agreement that expires in 2018, the United States provides about $3 billion a year, but lately Congress has added up to $500 million a year for missile defense. The United States has invested significantly in many of Israel's most effective defenses against terrorist threats. Daniel B. Shapiro, the American ambassador to Israel, said in a speech this week, he cited the Iron Dome anti-missile system and the delivery by the end of this year, 2016, of the first F-35 Joint Strike fighter. Looking ahead to the next decade, Mr. Netanyahu initially sought as much as $45 billion, but Mr. Obama refused to go that high. Money for missile defense is included in the package, and the two sides agreed not to seek additional funds from Congress over the next decade unless both agree, such as in the case of a war. The new deal will also phase out a special provision that allowed Israel to use about a quarter of the money to buy Israeli arms, an exception once intended to strengthen the small state's defense industry. Who's threatening Israel in the first place? Now, with Israel a robust arms exporter competing with American firms, it will have to use the American money to buy American military systems, just as other aid recipients are required to do. 
The most important thing about this is the strategic message, said Ilian Goldberg, the director of the Middle East Security Program at the Center for a New American Security. The fact that Obama and Netanyahu are able to get this done, even when they don't agree on a lot of things and they don't have a very good personal relationship, is a very strong signal that this is a vital alliance and each side recognizes it transcends politics and personalities. Yeah, it, just a bit. All roads lead to Israel part one. We'll put that quote into context. Dennis Ross, a former Middle East advisor to Mr. Obama and other presidents, noted that the agreement follows one negotiated by George W. Bush. If nothing else, it shows the basic American approach to Israel is in fact bipartisan, said Mr. Ross, author of Doomed to Succeed, A History of Israeli-American Relations. Well, Bush's administration was dominated by neoconservatives, as I said, elite Zionists. And people who were in his administration were also part of an organization, an Israeli-controlled organization, Organization, officially an American one, but American politics is Israeli politics in many ways. So called The Project for the New American Century, which in September 2000 published a document calling for a series of regime changes that the George W. Bush administration kicked off, as I talk about in episode 49. But the completion of the deal after nearly a year of discussions comes against the background of continuing friction between the two nations' leaders. Just in recent days, the Obama administration publicly chastised the Prime Minister for a provocative video in which he accused Palestinian leaders of favouring ethnic cleansing by demanding a Jew-free Palestinian state through opposing Israeli settlements in the West Bank. Palestinians said he twisted reality. The aid package hardly signals the end of such tension. Mr. Obama's foreign policy team is debating whether he should make a final effort after the November election to lay out terms of a possible peace agreement between Israelis and Palestinians. Such a move could come in a presidential speech or potentially, though less likely, a resolution at the United Nations Security Council. The idea would be to break out of what American officials consider a trap of waiting for one or both of the parties to step forward. While Mr. Obama's statement would hardly settle the issue, some advisors argue it might break the logjam or at least lay down a market. Other advisors doubt it would be worth Mr. Obama's political capital in the lamed-up period after the election and worry it would be unwelcome if Hillary Clinton wins. See, this is, again, why Colt absolutely wanted Trump to be the one in the White House and not Clinton, because Trump can and will, because of his connections to Israel, ownership by Israel, and the fact that he's not been in politics before. So he's an unknown quantity, whereas Hillary Clinton, obviously, for decades in the State Department, people know what her foreign policy is, whatever Israel wants it to be. And so it would be a harder sell with Hillary Clinton. It would be harder for her to do things that Trump can do because nobody knows what Trump's going to do. And Trump is owned by Israel, possibly more than any other, well, definitely more than any other president and possibly more than any other presidential candidate in American history. The article continues. Mr. Netanyahu strongly opposes such an American move, especially if it were made in the United Nations. His camp has expressed concern that once the aid agreement was finalized, Mr. Obama might feel emboldened to go ahead over Mr. Netanyahu's objections because the president could argue he had already addressed Israel's security needs. As a result, the finalization of the aid package may not leave either side feeling especially satisfied. My take is given the context, nobody feels like throwing a big party, said Aaron David Miller, a longtime Middle East peace negotiator now at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. Critics of Israel's policy toward the Palestinians said the United States was effectively subsidizing operations it regularly criticized. It doesn't criticize it too much. We are helping the Israelis sustain the cost of the occupation we claim is unsustainable, said Youssef Munayer, the executive director of the US campaign to end the Israeli occupation, a group advocating Palestinian rights. The whole policy is outdated, he added. It goes back to an era when there were major Arab-Israeli wars and when Israel was in a very different place economically. Those conditions no longer exist, even though the occupation does, and it is high time we address our complicity in it. Mr. Obama, however, promised to bolster Israeli security last year when he sealed an international agreement with Iran intended to curb its nuclear program. Of course, Trump pulled out of the Iran nuclear deal 
which I talk about in episode 16. Mr. Netanyahu vociferously opposed that deal, describing it as a naive capitulation to Tehran that would ultimately free it from international sanctions without effectively restraining its hostile ambitions. Iran is being demonized because the elite Zionist agenda, the cult's agenda, has for a long time been to conflict with Iran. And that was a goal of the project for the new American century. I talk about the recent American attack on Iran and on General Qassam Soleimani in episode 1662. Iran, of course, has not conflicted with anyone for at least 200 years and is far from being the nuclear threat that America and Israel claim that it is. Israel has the second biggest F-16 fleet outside of America, thanks to America, and it has the nerve to call Iran a nuclear power. The article concludes, negotiations on a security package since Mr. Obama, however, promised to bolster Israeli security last year when he sealed an international agreement with Iran intended to curb his nuclear program. Negotiations on a security package since then have progressed fitfully, but White House officials insisted the aid would underscore unparalleled American support for Israeli defenses. Through word and deed, this administration has done more for Israel's security than any other in U.S. history. Ms. Rice told Congress over the summer in a letter also signed by the budget director, Sean Donovan. But that was before the Trump administration came to power. And there's an article on a blog called Uprooted Palestinian talking about comments made by former Georgia Congresswoman Cynthia McKinney, who's been very vocal about her opposition to Israeli politics, not least their genocide of the Palestinians. And it's talking about an interview, the article, that Cynthia McKinney did for Press TV. And the article was published in 2011 and you can see a video on youtube of cynthia mckinney talking about what she's quoted as saying in this article and i've watched the video on youtube the article is called cynthia mckinney drops bombshell candidates to sign pledges of support for israel and the video on youtube is called cynthia mckinney u.s lawmakers forced to sign pledge to support israel and this is what the article says in an interview which aired on press tv one day before the APAC conference got underway in Washington. APAC is the American-Israeli Public Affairs Committee, a massively influential Israeli lobby group in America. It sounds like an official organization, but it's a lobby group. And another influential lobby group is the American Jewish Committee, set up in part by Jacob Schiff from the Schiff family, who are very close to the Rothschilds, who are the innermost core of the Israel-controlling cult. The article says, in an interview which aired on Press TV one day before the APAC conference got underway in Washington, former Georgia Congresswoman Cynthia McKinney revealed what amounts to some pretty startling news regarding the extent of the Israeli lobby's influence over Congress. During her years in Congress, she stated candidates for both the House and the Senate were requested to sign pledges of support for Israel, documents in which the candidate promised a vote to provide consistent levels of economic aid to the Zionist state. Refusal to sign the pledge meant no funding for the candidate's campaign. You make a commitment that you will vote to support the military superiority of Israel, the economic assistance that Israel wants that you would vote to provide that. McKinney, who served in Congress from 93 to 2003 and 2005 to 2007, tells Press TV interviewer Marzia Shami. According to McKinney, the pledge also included a value to support Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. I talk about Trump's decision to recognize Jerusalem as 
capital of Israel instead of Tel Aviv in episode 17. Every candidate for Congress, she says, at that time had a pledge. They were given a pledge to sign. If you don't sign the pledge, you don't get money. For example, it was almost like water torture for me. My parents observed this. I would get a call and the person on the other end of the phone would say, I want to do a fundraiser for you. And then we would get into the planning. I would get really excited because, of course, you have to have money in order to run a campaign. And then two weeks, three weeks into the planning, they would say, did you sign the pledge? And I would say, no, I didn't sign the pledge. And then my fundraiser would go kaput. A big source of elite Zionist funding comes from the banking system. Wall Street funding for candidates. Global banking system, pretty much the global banking system, is owned by cult. The Rothschilds are fundamentally important in the global banking system and is, in terms of key positions, major positions, filled with elite Zionists, especially in America. The article continues. During her years in Congress, McKinney opposed US involvement in foreign wars, questioned the official version of the events of 9-11, which Israel, more specifically elite Zionism and the cult that controls Israel, was all over. I want to get into 9-11 at some point, the elite Zionist and cult influence of events before, during and after 9-11, and why what was justified on the back of 9-11 suited Israel, as was described in the Project for the New American Century publication called Rebuilding America's Defenses, Strategy, Forces and Resources for a New Century, published in September 2000. The article continues. During her years in Congress, McKinney opposed U.S. involvement in foreign wars, questioned the official version of the events of 9-11, and introduced articles of impeachment against former President George W. Bush. Her final term in Congress came to an end after APAC funneled money into the campaign of her opponent, Hank Johnson. McKinney's comments to Press TV came on the eve of the APAC policy conference in Washington, which was addressed Sunday by President Obama. Last Thursday, Obama gave a major speech on the Middle East, which he suggested that a basis for peace in the region might be a withdrawal by Israel to its pre-1967 border. Of course, 1967 was when there was the Six-Day War. However, the article goes on, in the speech Sunday, the president quite predictably backtracked on the proposal, and it may well have been Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu who laid down the law to him. Could very well have been. On Friday, I was joined at the White House by Prime Minister Netanyahu, and we re reaffirmed that fundamental truth that has guided our presidents and prime ministers for more than 60 years. That even while we may at times disagree, as friends sometimes will, the bonds between the United States and Israel are unbreakable, and the commitment of the United States to the security of Israel is ironclad. Isn't it just? He also clarified what he had meant by his reference to 1967 alliance with mutually agreed swaps made in his speech Thursday. By definition, it means that the parties themselves, Israelis and Palestinians, will negotiate a border that is different than the one that existed on June the 4th, 1967. McKinney was a candidate for president on the Green Party ticket in 2008. Also in 2008, she sailed aboard the free Gaza ship Dignity as it attempted to deliver humanitarian supplies to Gaza, making a second effort to reach the blockaded territory the following year on the spirit of humanity. Both ships were blocked from reaching their destination by the Israeli Navy. The comments about the pledges required of candidates for Congress are made in the second part of the program. In the first part, she discusses how a congressional district in Georgia was dismantled to a legal suit brought about with the assistance of the Anti-Defamation League, one of these elite Zionist organizations that defame people, ironically, for being anti-Semitic when they're not, and try to get their events cancelled and to get them deplatformed because anyone even mildly criticizing Israel has to be jumped on by Israel lobby groups and elite Zionist organizations for reasons I explained in episode 10. And the pledge to Israel is not just something that happens in politics, it's even happened in daily life. This is an article in the Washington Post. She lost her school job after refusing to sign a pro-Israel pledge. Now she's filing a lawsuit. Bahio Amawi, a speech pathologist who has worked as a contractor in a Texas school district for nine years, received a new contract agreement to sign in September for the upcoming school year. The agreement asked her to affirm that she did not boycott Israel and assert that she would not while working for the school. She declined to sign it. Amawi, an American citizen of Palestinian descent who was born in Austria, said the statements infringed on her principles. Her stats on Israel's 
treatment of Palestinians and a belief in the First Amendment, so she was forced to stop working with the district. The contract which stems from a 2017 law passed by the state's Republican-held legislature and governor that prohibited state agencies from contracting with companies boycotting Israel is the subject of a lawsuit filed this week by a Maui in federal district court in Austin. Maui says the state's enforcement of the law violates her right to free speech. My first reaction was shock. She told reporters Monday, why is the government restricting me from boycotting a certain entity? Because it's Israel. Amawi started working for the Flugerville Independent School District outside Austin in 2009. Her work entails doing evaluations of Arabic-speaking children according to the complaints she filed. Texas Attorney General Kim Paxton and the school district are named in the lawsuit. In a statement posted on Facebook, the district said it was banned by the recently passed Texas state law, which cast in a negative light. This language is required by the state of Texas for all school districts in Texas, along with other governmental entities, the statement said. Unfortunately, Flugerville ISD and all Texas school districts are at the mercy of the state and the regulations printed into law. And in situations such as this, we are forced to spend time on state political issues and not on our core mission, educating students. Texas passed a law in 2017, part of a wave of states that passed legislation requiring that state agencies do not do business with companies that support the BDS movement from boycott divestment and sanctions to boycott Israeli goods. BDS is targeted by people supporting Israel and they are simply a movement who are dedicated to boycotting Israel until they treat the Palestinians with respect rather than as vermin. The bill's language has been interpreted so broadly that the application for some grants for victims of Hurricane Harvey included a similar provision drawing rebukes from the local officials in the American Civil Liberties Union. It is not clear whether other states' laws have been written or interpreted in a way to include contractors such as a Maui. Texas's ban on contracting with any boycotter of Israel constitutes viewpoint discrimination that shields constitutionally protected political advocacy in support of Palestine and Maui's complaint states. Fredo Smith, a constitutional law expert at Emory University, cited two Supreme Court precedents, a 1996 case that found that it was unconstitutional for government officials to retaliate against independent contractors for their speech, as well as the 1976 ruling Elrod v. Burns that found it unconstitutional for governments to refuse to hire people for their political views in most circumstances. In most circumstances, apart from Israel, these principles taken together strongly suggest that refusing to renew a contract of someone who wishes to advocate a political position raises very serious constitutional concerns under those Supreme Court precedents, Smith said. Texas Governor Greg Abbott, Republican, tweeted his support for Israel on a Monday as news of a Maui's lawsuit began to circulate. Texas stands with Israel, he wrote. Period. Glenn Greenwald, a columnist and compiling editor of The Intercept, who writes frequently about Israeli politics as they intercept with those in the United States, wrote harshly of the contract. The language of the affirmation of Maui was told she must sign reads like Orwellian or McCarthyite self-parody, the classic political loyalty oath that every American should instinctively shudder upon reading, he wrote. In order to continue to work in Maui, would be perfectly free to engage in any political activism against her own country, participate in an economic boycott of any state or city within the US, or work against the policies of any other government in the world, except Israel. For reasons, again, I explain and all roads lead to Israel. Amawi said that she made the decision for her own values, but also to serve as an example for her four children, telling the intercept that she did not consider signing the pledge in order to keep her work. I could not in good conscience do that, she said. If I did, I would not only be betraying Palestinians suffering under an occupation that I believe is unjust and thus become complicit in their repression, but I'll also be betraying my fellow Americans by enabling violations of our constitutional rights to free speech and to protest peacefully. Amawi's lawsuit says she's seeking an injunction that will strike the no boycott of Israel clause from score contracts as well as other statewide and pay a reasonable cost in attorney's fees. The point of boycotting any products to support Israel is to put pressure on Israeli governments to change its treatment, the inhumane treatment of the Palestinian people, she told The Intercept. Unlikely to succeed, but absolutely 
agree with the motivation. And as I say, I talk far more about the colossal influence Israel has on American politics in episode 63. And this massively includes influencing American foreign policy. And American and British foreign policy is Israeli foreign policy, as I explained in episode 60, as well as French foreign policy, German and others. People in the Middle Near East and North Africa since 2002 have been subject to endless invasions, attacks and regime change for the benefit of Israel. Libya and Syria are once thriving nations, at least in comparison to now, until the dynamic duo American, Britain and others came along and destroyed those countries. I talk about Israeli foreign policy as it's played out since 2002 in relation to America and Britain in episode 49. America is in trillions of dollars of debt, effectively bankrupt, but for the debt ceiling continually being raised. The latest figure reported by the Treasury Department as of early 2019 is $22 trillion. At the same time since 2002, America has spent trillions on the military and overseas invasions and regime change for the benefit of Israel because of Israel's ownership of American politics. Another method of slavery is the law and court system. The City of London, not the city as a whole, but the financial district, is where the legal system of Britain is centred, and it has very close connections with the Knights Templar and Freemasonry. Most Freemasons don't want to manipulate anyone, but there are networks within secret societies which are manipulating and use the lodge in the secret society to that end, especially at the higher levels, the real higher levels, which many Freemasons don't even know exist. There are many good judges and people who work in the legal system who want to preside over cases and give the best judgment they can and bring justice but there are many also who are corrupt and part of that corruption for some is their connection to the secret society network the great weather lodge of freemasonry is located in london which is a real center for the cult's global manipulation especially the city of london for historical reasons as well as other reasons there are so many laws now and have been for a while which are not about protecting people but controlling people if the legal system was only about laws protecting people in various ways not just physically but financially and other laws like copyright laws etc then there would be dramatically fewer laws than there are now governments make laws and it's easier for a party hierarchy to persuade encourage or threaten members naive agreeable or intimidatable members of their party in parliament to vote for a certain law or legislation physical slavery also takes the form of pharmaceutical medicine including vaccines which are destroying the health of the body and are about getting access to the body and injecting toxins and chemicals into the body to destroy health I talk about vaccines in episode 44, part 2. Mandatory vaccinations are the ultimate expression of fascism, whereby you don't have a choice short of going to jail and being barred from public places. That's increasingly happening. About what goes into your body and your children's body. I mean, what else can you call that but fascism? Totalitarianism. Parents who don't vaccinate their children are being accused of medical neglect, and those parents who challenge state imposition on their child's life are increasingly being targeted by the state, and in some cases, having their children taken away by state social services networks. I talk about this stealing of children and explain how the establishment and indeed the cult's agenda in general is targeting children in various and many ways in pay-per-view in print. Hospital treatment is also, some of it at least, about destroying health. Cancer treatment, for example, is basically one of two options, chemotherapy or radiotherapy, both of which target and destroy cells, not only cancer cells, but cells. And yet we're told that cancer is a disease of the cell. All the money donated over decades for cancer research, and this is the best cancer patients are given to choose from. It's not by chance, and it's not just for money tree reasons either. Talking of toxins, food and drink is another form of enslavement in terms of their effect on health and the brain. Sugary food and drink is often filled with chemicals like aspartame, also called avantame or neotame, and acesulfame-K, sucralose, and others. None of the others are as bad as aspartame, but they're not good for health either. And aspartame affects the brain. It's known as an excitotoxin, and it excites brain cells over a period of time and destroys them. It stops the brain working to full capacity. Food is also contaminated with GMO, especially in America, in countries like Britain, which require GMO labelling. 
And so basically there is no GMO food sold in Britain on, on a mass scale. The trick is played whereby farmers will import GMO feed from countries such as Brazil and elsewhere and feed their animals GMO animal feed. The trick is not farmers. Part of the trick, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is the trick is that there's no labelling required for that. When people eat the meat or dairy products from these animals, the GMO material crosses over to humans. GMO can affect human DNA. I talk about just how influential DNA is on human perception in episode 53 part 2, where I tell a fascinating story of human evolution from a different perspective. Human society is deluged with toxins and poisons as I detail in episode 25 and explain why. Technology is more recent form of enslavement on the scale that people are addicted to technology nowadays. Technology addiction is now being treated the same as drink or drug addiction. When you are addicted to something, the addiction controls you. You are a slave to the addiction, unless you choose not to be. Wireless technology is emitting enormous amounts of harmful radiation as I talk about in episode 36 and 44 part 2. The cult's agenda seeks a wireless, smart grid of unceasing radiation and total surveillance. This is openly talked about and one of the justifications is saving the planet from human-caused climate change which justifies so much of the cult's agenda and which is utterly demolished in the pay-per-view book, pay-per-view in print, available soon. The mainstream media is another form of slavery because to control people you have to control the information they receive and the people are not told through the major media outlets the true nature of world events and changes in society. They're told what's happening to an extent, but not why it's happening, except for the official cover story. Control of information is also achieved to historic portions by the internet giants of a cult-owned Silicon Valley, and ever more so all the time. From information received come perceptions, and from perceptions come action or inaction. Control of perception is utterly essential for any tiny few, the cult, to control billions. This brings me on to the final stage of enslavement, unfolding before our eyes every day and being driven largely out of Silicon Valley, known as the transhuman agenda, which I've talked about in episodes 10 and 11. This is the plan openly talked about by the Silicon Valley talking heads and billionaires to connect the human brain via technology in the smart grid to artificial intelligence, which will replace human consciousness. And it's sold as being about making us superhuman, but it won't make us superhuman. It will make us subhuman. That's the cult's agenda. Anyone listening to All Roads Lead to Israel will, both parts, not just part one, will see the tech revolution in a very different context. The transhuman agenda is the ultimate slavery, because while there are obvious examples of physical slavery, as I've explained, the ultimate form of slavery is slavery of the mind, and that's where we're going if we don't wake up fast. As the German-American poet Charles Bukowski brilliantly once said, slavery was never abolished. It was only extended to include everyone. If people would only look around and evaluate their life in society, they'd see just how controlled and enslaved we are as a global population. And that's the first step to addressing the enslavement. And the next subject this week is Israeli election. Which psychopath do you want? That's the choice. This is in Haaretz. Two weeks before Israel's election, Parties focus on avoiding yet another stalemate. Two weeks before the March 2nd election, the political parties are gearing up to try to prevent the same political stalemate that led to the dissolution of the Knesset, the Israeli parliament. Twice last year, the polls aren't promising in this regard. They continue to indicate that there has not been any substantial change in the makeup of the two political blocs. It appears that neither Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu nor Kahol Levan leader Benny Gantz think his bloc can win 61 seats. What they are aiming for is to try to capture two or three seats from the rival bloc and to raise the voter turnout in their own camp. Both left and right fear that fatigued voters will simply stay home, which could cause a marked change in the balance of forces in the next Knesset. The main scenario envisioned by Kahol Levan is the formation of a minority government with Israel 
between you and the Labour Orchestra and Moritz. The party hopes that three parties together will win more votes than the right-wing parties. A Cajol Levan source said that under these circumstances, at least one party from the right-wing bloc could be swayed to join a Gantz-led government, but he refused to reveal the basis for this assumption, since the leaders of the right-wing parties have once again declared their loyalty to Netanyahu, saying they would not join or support a government led by anyone else. Gatz's party will be focused on seeking support among wavering centre-right voters and is primarily targeting four groups, Russian speakers, Ethiopian immigrants, the Druze community and national religious voters. Gatz himself will be working on israel pertaining voters by highlighting messages that are at the heart of Avigdor Lieberman's campaign, including legislating a military draft law in its original form, advancing a secular agenda and a promise that ultra-Orthodox parties will be only junior partners in the Cajon of government, if at all. In recent days, Gatz has intensified his attacks on the mainly Arab joint list in an effort attract voters. I won't sit in the government with the joint list and I don't need their support, Gantz said Saturday night. After failing to end up the largest party in two straight elections, Likud is also working to sway voters from particularly organised groups like Ethiopian immigrants, farmers, taxi drivers and small business owners. On Sunday, it announced it had reached an agreement with the Chome party, or Chome, for which 15,000 farmers voted in September so that it would drop out of the race. On a larger scale, it is using positive messages to encourage right-wing voters while continuing to attack Holaban on the issue of support for the joint list. Likud is also zeroing in on young people who, from a demographic perspective, should lean rightward but are having trouble keeping up with the cost of living and who blame Netanyahu for not doing enough to lower prices, particularly housing prices. That's why last week the Premier announced that near Bakat will be his next finance minister and on Sunday released an economic plan which is nothing more than a repeat of all promises to release land for building and cut bureaucracy. Above all, Likud is trying to raise voter turnout among its base, which is why it will continue to hold daily election rallies and meetings, even though some in the party cried this is a waste of effort and resources. The party is focused on getting more seats in the next Knesset, although political observers are sceptical about its ability to win 15 or 16 seats, which is their declared goal. It now has 13 seats. We're dealing with a campaign of delegitimization, but what is clear is that the Arab public isn't buying it, a party activist said. We're getting a lot of data from the field that people are interested in increasing their representation out of a belief that greater representation will force everyone to relate to the joint list differently. The article continues. Joint list members admitted that in recent days they've been criticised for being dragged into a corner over whether or not they would recommend Gantz for Prime Minister with Lieberman or without him. As if this is all we should be dealing with, then it's not true, said a party MK. We're not going to sleep and waking up with Gantz on our minds. Article continues. In its campaign, Shaz continues to highlight messages related to tradition and Judaism. On Saturday night, it released a video showing that instead of Shabbat quiet, the streets will be filled with noisy buses, road work and street music without Shaz. What kind of Shabbat do you want for your children? The announcer are asked. Shaz is also focused on getting its voters to the polls. According to a party analysis, some 300,000 right-wing voters didn't vote in the September election, although Shaz did well in the last election, winning nine seats. It knows that the size of the party is less important than the size of the bloc. That's why Shaz gave a look at access to its computer system in an effort to join forces and reach potential voters. The party is not happy with the stalemate predicted by the polls. He will continue to focus on the tradition and Haredi communities as well as anyone to whom a Jewish state is important, a party source said. Yisrael Betany was trying to maintain its achievement of last September when it gained 140,000 new voters compared to the April election. It's particularly concerned by surveys showing that a clear majority of voters don't want a fourth round of elections and is thus reiterating the message of the party leader Lieberman is not an obstacle to forming a government but actually has a solution. The assumption that those 140,000 voters harbour clear sentiments against the ultra-Orthodox Haredim. That's why the party has been conducting a campaign linking the Haredim with money that borders on anti-Semitic. What doesn't these days? While not worried about its base of Russian immigrants, it is aware that it could lose some of this community's younger voters. Given the aggressive campaign by Lieberman against the Haredi community, which Kahol, Lavangier and Lapid periodically joins, the party representing the Ashkenazi Haredim feels that the battle this time is more significant than before. It's not just a question of religion. We feel for the first time like they are threatening the Haredi public's ability to exist as a community, a source said. 
The party, whose base of supporters is considered stable, opened up its headquarters throughout the country on Sunday. The party continues to use its own media channels, primarily the various daily papers that go to almost every Haredi household, while leading rabbis are expected to conduct visits and special rallies. We're very organised in terms of election day itself. Our system is already coordinated in terms of rides to the polling stations, activists, digital and whatever is needed, said the source. It worked beautifully the first two times. There's no reason it shouldn't work the third time. The party was pleased with the most recent polls showing it winning seven to eight seats, but activists know the test will come 72 hours before the election when Netanyahu is most likely to make his move toward pressuring Yamina voters to vote Lukat. The party will thus seek to emphasise that only a strong Yamina will make it possible to impose Israeli sovereignty in the West Bank. The understanding in Yamina is that Netanyahu and Gantz, with backing from the White House, are expected to form a unity government. Yamina's goal is to thus be party of such a government, assuming Netanyahu leads it in the event that a right-wing government cannot be formed. The party will stress that a unity government can bring about a Palestinian state and forget about applying sovereignty. The combined state is now trying to realise its recent poll results that predict it will win nine seats, which is less than the 11 that the Geshir and Moretz now have together. In addition to trying to deter a whole Levan from conducting a campaign at their slate's expense, Labor Geshir and Moretz is promoting a civic social agenda to excite their supporters and bring back left-wing voters who deserted to Kahol Levan. It has announced that if it joins the next government, it will demand that Nitsan Horowitz will be named Education Minister and Orly Levi Abakasis Health Minister. Peretz will want a senior in economic portfolio and a role in conducting diplomatic talks with the Palestinians. Well, as I said, with the Israeli election, you're looking at a choice between two psychopaths, Benjamin Netanyahu or Benny Gantz. The Israeli government being so close to the cult which runs the world, especially Israel, the real centre of the cult, which I talk about in an episode called All Roads Lead to Israel, would not be offering the Israeli people the choice of Netanyahu or Gantz if they were not both acceptable to the cult. Netanyahu would not have been Prime Minister of Israel for so long if he was not acceptable to the cult. In Israel, of all places, unless you are acceptable to the cult, in other words, you're willing to play out their agenda. Benny Gatz even has the same first name and even looks similar to Netanyahu. I mean, talk about lack of choice. If you did that in a cartoon, people would say, ridiculous, it wouldn't work, but it's real. Benjamin Gantz is an Israeli soldier and was recommended to be the chief of the general staff, in other words, commander-in-chief of the Israel Defence Forces by Ehud Barak, former prime minister and former commander of Unit 269 of the Military Intelligence Directorate, which is the military intelligence arm of the Israel Defence Forces, who are committing such appalling genocide against the Palestinians year after year. So Benjamin Netanyahu or Benjamin Gantz is hardly much of a change in mentality and hardly much of a choice. In America, the Democratic Party has been taken over by political correctness and the woke agenda, which is actually fast asleep, and obviously and openly so, but with Trump, it's still unfolding in America. Nothing like as much as it would were the Democrats to get into power, but it's still very prominent, not least in the schools and colleges for which the Democratic Party is very much its natural conclusion. The same with the Labour Party in Britain, who are basically Britain's Democratic Party in that context. Were they to get into power, political correctness and the woke agenda would explode in Britain, but it's still massively influential in Britain with the Conservative Party in power. So even though the opposition party is in power, it's still unfolding. Both parties are introducing climate change legislation and law to protect the planet from something not caused by humans. In other words, all the key areas of the cult's agenda, which I've laid out during the course of pay-per-view since early 2018, continue to be introduced no matter which party is in power. The best way to make a real statement in the political system is not voting, or at least 
spoiling the vote at the very least. Israel, according to this article, is seeing a drop in voters. Israelis could come together with Palestinians in mutual respect, although not necessarily physically because of the the war and the physical divisions between Israel and Palestine. And one of the reasons is to destroy Palestinian land and so Israel can take the land. But another is literally building a, a barrier between Israelis and Palestinians, stop them coming together. But Israelis have come together in mutual respect and registered their reservations with the Israeli treatment in genocide of the Palestinians by registering that during election time. This would generate an interest by the media of why are dramatically less people voting or spoiling their vote or whatever. And then the people of Israel can make their feelings known. This is why. Because they try and do that now. Well, they get nowhere. I talked in the last episode about letting go of labels and just seeing everyone as people. The phrase blind justice refers to the law and legal system making judgments on cases based not on anything other than the case itself. How about blind interaction? How about interacting with people based on who they are, not what they are? Labels refer to what, but actions and perceptions are an expression of who, and that's how we should be interacting with people. That's what will make a difference. And the next subject this week is coronavirus. This is in the Telegraph. Police given unprecedented powers to force people into coronavirus quarantine. Police have been handed unprecedented powers to force those at risk of coronavirus into quarantine amid fears two GPs may have passed the virus on to their patients. The new measures have been put in place with immediate effect as the health secretary warned that the spread of the virus is now a serious and imminent threat to the British public. On Monday, the number of cases in the UK doubled with panic on the streets of Brighton amid and the closure of a busy GP practice as two doctors were diagnosed with the disease. An unnamed businessman who contracted the virus in Singapore is now linked to at least 11 infections among fellow Britons at a French ski resort before returning home to Brighton and later being admitted for treatment. They include five people who fell ill after returning to the UK, two of whom have recently been working as GPs in Brighton. One, Catriona Greenwood, had been working at the city's county medical centre, which on Monday closed to the public. Her husband, Bob Sainer, an environmental consultant, nine-year-old son, among five Britons, being treated in France for the disease. Health officials said they were working to urgently identify any patients and healthcare workers who may have come into close contact with Brighton GPs, who they have not named. Patients have been advised to contact the NHS 111 phone service if they have concerns. Under the new legal powers, police are allowed to use reasonable force, if necessary, to detain those who may be contaminated with coronavirus for up to 14 days. Well, there's a lot of psychopathic police who will interpret reasonable force to mean far beyond that. The regulations were brought in with instant effect on Monday after one of the 93 Britons quarantined in Arrow Park Hospital threatened to abscond. Government sources said the unprecedented measures went far wider than control of those in the two evacuation camps in Wirral and Milton Keynes. Under the restrictions, any person deemed at risk of spreading the disease could be held against their will and forcibly assessed and detained for a two-week period. Health officials stressed that such judgments would not be taken lightly with the decisions involving the country's chief medical officer. All the new cases are linked to the unnamed super-spreader who spent four days with them at the ski resort of Les Contaminus Montjoy after he attended a conference in Singapore. The businessman returned to Brighton but was not admitted to hospital for some five days and after he had spent the evening at a Hove pub. In one day, the number of cases diagnosed within this country rose from four to eight with 11 cases around the world linked to the Britain. Health officials are now attempting to track down passengers on easy jet flights who may have come into contact with those infected as they flew from Geneva to Gatwick more than a week ago. A child at a local school has been told to self-isolate for 14 days, while a Sussex University student was on Monday admitted to hospital for tests. Meanwhile, a major study found the virus could have an incubation period of almost a month. Currently, the World Health Organization estimates the incubation period to be up to two weeks and recommends that the follow-up of 
contacts of confirmed cases is the same period. As a result, those at risk in the UK are being put in self-isolation or quarantine for two weeks. But the major study published last night by Chinese researchers found that the incubation period may actually be as long as 24 days. The major study involved 1,099 patients with laboratory-confirmed coronavirus in 552 hospitals across the country, while the medium time for the disease to develop was three days, a time frame ranged from 0 to 24 days. British scientists said their suggestion was worrying, warning that the disease could turn into an epidemic which affects up to 80% of the population. Paul Hunter, professor in medicine at the University of East Anglia, said, The suggestion that the incubation period may extend up to 24 days is definitely worrying. Discussing the recent spread of disease, Neil Ferguson, professor of mathematical biology at Imperial College London, said, Potentially everybody is susceptible, so we could be talking about an epidemic that affects 60 to 80% of the population. Well, that would be the first, because the other apparent epidemics like SARS and mad cow disease and foot and mouth affected hardly anybody. Dr. Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus, World Health Organization Director General, on Monday raised fears that the cases in France and the UK involving those with no travel history to China could be the spark that becomes the bigger fire. Public Health England Medical Director Yvonne Doyle said, as a result of our contact tracing, we now know the new cases announced today are all closely linked to one another. Two of these new cases are healthcare workers, and as soon as they were identified, we advised them to search. There's an an irony in that healthcare, just like a, a GP apparently getting it, they're supposed to know how to keep themselves clean and healthy. Anyway, two of these new cases are healthcare workers, and as soon as they were identified, we advised them to self-isolate in order to keep patient contact to a minimum. We are now working urgently to identify all patients and other healthcare workers who may have come into close contact, and at this stage, we believe this to be a relatively small number. The article continues. Amid rising concerns across the country, a second practice, Brackley Medical Centre in Northamptonshire, was also closed as a precautionary measure amid concerns about coronavirus, but later reopened. And a Hampshire school closed on Monday after students became ill after visiting Southeast Asia and Singapore. The St. Mary's Independent school said the measure was precautionary with plans to close the school for two days and carry out an enhanced deep clean following advice from public health england there have been more than 40,000 cases of the virus globally mostly in china where the death toll last night passed 1,000. well when you look at china and wuhan in particular population are suffering from extraordinary chemical pollution poverty war starvation dehydration contaminated water no real sanitation and you put all that together and how do you distinguish between the symptoms of any of those causes of illness and coronavirus an epidemic whether real or engineered into place can be used to impose the very orwellian brave new world and hunger games style society the cult's agenda desires with mandatory vaccinations quarantine and orwellian imposition under the guise of protecting people just like changing society on the back of the human cause climate change scam is just protecting people from something that doesn't exist the coronavirus quarantine could be used to detain dissidents of authority and those challenging various aspects of the cult's agenda and how would anybody know whether they're genuinely suffering from coronavirus or whether they're just presenting regular flu symptoms or symptoms of the various causes of illness i mentioned just now and are being detained by the authorities using the excuse of coronavirus this is why it's more important than ever to question and circulate information challenging official narratives because what they're used to justify can only happen if people en masse are not aware of alternative information challenging the official narrative. And the final subject this week is hate crime. This is in the Daily Mail. Police have recorded 120,000 cases of non-crime hate incidents, despite, despite accepting they are not illegal, as judge warns of chilling effect on free speech as he slams Gestapo police who quiz businessman over transphobic tweets. Don't worry about catching burglars and murderers. Just look at what people are tweeting. Police and get paid for it. (laughs) 
Police have recorded almost 120,000 non-crime hate incidents, it was revealed today, as a judge slammed Gestapo police for quizzing a businessman at work over his transphobic tweets. Despite police accepting that such incidents are not crimes, they have still been logged on a system and can show up in criminal records checks preventing the accused from getting jobs. This is where it's going. I've said this before. The idea is to bring in real-life consequences for people who speak against the official narrative and who say things are not politically correct or alleged to be hateful. The idea is to threaten real-life consequences of people in many numbers won't say those things. Intimidation. And there's a reason why this is happening, which I'll get to. The figures emerged as Harry Miller, a former police officer, won a court victory against Humberside Police after the force investigated him with transphobic tweets. Under the hate crime operational guidelines adopted in 2014, forces must record any actions deemed to be motivated by an element of hate, such as racism or transgender phobic comments, even if there is no evidence to prove them. Police was criticised, the police were criticised, that should be, by High Court Judge Julian Knowles, who said Mr Miller's tweet should not have been categorised as a hate incident and said officers had acted like the Gestapo or Stasi by turning up at his work to quiz him about them. One of the messages which Mr Miller was known to have retweeted, so he didn't originally say it, was a poem which included the line, your vagina goes nowhere. In figures obtained by the Telegraph, South Wales police were found to have logged the highest number of hate incidents with their 13,856 cases since 2014. The Metropolitan Police logged over 9,000 in the same time period. Mr Miller's experience has been the most high-profile case of citizens being investigated by police even when they have not committed a crime. This is the Thought Police of Orwell's 1984. The 54-year-old was told that 30 messages he had tweeted or retweeted over the past year were being recorded as a hate incident. A judge today described the police's actions had a substantial chilling effect on Mr Miller's right to free speech. An action in the court's decision, Mr Justice Knowles said Mr Miller's tweets were lawful and that the effect of the police turning up at Mr Miller's place of work because of his political opinions must not be underestimated. He added, to do so would be to undervalue a cardinal democratic freedom. In this country, we have never had a Cheka, a Gestapo or a Stasi. We have never lived in an Orwellian society. Well, we have for a very long time. It's just becoming more obvious. He also said the claimant's tweets were lawful and that there was not the slightest risk that he would commit a criminal offence by continuing to tweet. I find the combination of the police visiting the claimant's place of work and their subsequent statements in relation to the possibility of prosecution were a disproportionate interference with the claimant's right to freedom of expression because of their potential chilling effect. Mr Miller was joined at the High Court today by a group of supporters including members of his organisation FairCop. The organisation formed in May 2019 from concerns about police attempts to criminalise people for opinions that are not against the law. Other supporters outside court today included Father Ted Creator and comedy writer Graham Linehan, who said he has also had the police phoning him because of his opinions on transgender issues. Talk about that in a previous episode. The College of Police and Guidance defines a hate incident as any non-crime incident which is perceived by the victim or any other person to be motivated by hostility or prejudice against a person who is transgender or perceived to be transgender. In a ruling on Friday, the High Court in London found Hepperside Police's actions were a disproportionate interference with Mr Miller's right to freedom of expression. But Mr Justice Julian Knowles rejected a wider challenge to the lawfulness of the College of Police guidance, ruling that it serves legitimate purpose and is not disproportionate. The judge said the claimant's tweets were lawful and there was not the slightest risk that he would commit a criminal offence. At a hearing in November, Mr Miller's barrister Ian Wise QC said his client was deeply concerned about proposed reforms to the law on gender recognition and had used Twitter to engage in debate about transgender issues. He added, it's really, really hard to get the message out. We are not transphobic. We just think there are some issues that really need to be discussed. 
Mr. Linehan, who said he's had police come into my house, phone me up because of his public opinions on transgender issues, said the ruling was just chipping away at the corner of the problems, but is significant. In his judgment, Mr. Justice Knowles emphasised, I am not concerned with the merits of the transgender debate. The issues are obviously complex. As I observed during the hearing, the legal status and rights of transgender people are a matter for Parliament and not the courts. Holding a copy of George Orwell's 1984, he added, I'm going to continue tweeting, I'm going to continue campaigning, and I'm going to continue standing with the women in order to secure their sex-based rights. This judgment today has told us that we can do that, and if the police come knocking, say, Miller v. Humberside, please bugger off. Deputy Chief Constable Bernie O'Reilly, Executive Director of the College of Policing, said it is pleasing that today's judgment found that the College of Policing's guidance on the recording of non-crime hate incidents is both lawful and extremely important in protecting people. Policing's position is clear. You want everyone to be able to express opinions as passionately as they wish without breaking the law. He added, our guidance is about protecting people because of who they are, and we know this is an area where people may be reluctant to report things to us because of the very personal nature of what they experience or perceive. What they perceive. See, it may not even actually be hate crime in a lot of cases, it won't be, but as long as someone interprets it as that, there can be consequences. In policing, we don't always get things right, and there will, of course, be some learning following today's judgment. The interview between Mr. Miller and the officer took place at 3pm on January 23rd last year. The PC said he received a complaint about Harris tweets from a victim, an unnamed member of the public down south, who had alerted the hate crime unit of Britain's biggest police force land in Scotland Yard. Officers at the Yard, in turn, asked Humberside Police to interview Harry after tracing him to his plant and machinery business in the forces area. The policeman told Harry that he was in trouble for retweeting a transphobic limerick. He was told that he was also being investigated for tweeting support for BBC Women's Hour presenter Jenny Murray who had been criticised by Oxford students after writing a newspaper article questioning whether transgender women are real women. Harry was told in the conversation at Tesco that he had not broken the law but was guilty of a non-crime hate incident. According to court papers, the constable explained to him sometimes a woman's brain grows a man's body in the womb and that is what transgender is. When Harry asked why the officer kept calling the person who made the complaint the victim when no crime had been established, he was told that's just how it works. Encouraging people to be victims, which I also talked about in the previous episode. And there was a story of a mother of two recorded transgender woman, a pig in a wig convicted of sending offensive tweets as free speech campaigners protest outside court. And she said that the transgender woman was playing a victim card. And I'll talk about that in the previous episode as well. And there's another section here. How police guidelines on hate incidents are lawful but officers overstep the mark. In today's judgment, this was published on the 15th. In today's judgment, Mr Justice Julian Knowles ruled that Humberside Police would have acted lawfully if it had merely recorded the tweets as a hate incident. However, he said police had overstepped the line by visiting Mr Miller at his place of work and then with the subsequent statements in relation to the possibility of a prosecution against him. He referred to it as a disproportionate interference with Mr Miller's right to freedom of expression. However, Judge Knowles rejected a wider challenge to the lawfulness of the hate incident guidance, ruling that it serves legitimate purposes and is not disproportionate. It continues, rules surrounding hate incidents are set out in guidance written up by the College of Policing. It defines a hate incident as any non-crime incident which is perceived by the victim or any other person to be motivated by hostility or prejudice against a person who is transgender or perceived to be transgender. This differs from a hate crime, which is a criminal offence. The definition of a hate crime, according to the guidance, is any criminal offence which is perceived by the victim or any other person to be motivated by hostility or prejudice against a person who is transgender or perceived to be transgender. Well, it's not very bloody different, is it? Part of this agenda of diverting police away from tackling crime, either by turning them into George Orwell's thought police, as in this story, or by giving them stacks of paperwork, is to create a jungle atmosphere, if you like, in towns and cities, a an every man for himself 
atmosphere and every woman for themselves. This which has been achieved to a large extent already by unceasing migration, especially in places like Sweden, where there are no-go areas for law enforcement now. Not all migrants, but some of them, are psychopaths, and that's the case in any race or group of people. It's not the label, it's the person. This jungle atmosphere generates divide and rule, and the justification for massively increased surveillance, tracking and control. And on that subject, social media, I say, was created to be not just a vehicle for historic levels of surveillance, tracking and profiling, but also a central monitoring point for its users, most of the global population, for authorities and employers to judge people and respond against people saying things challenging the official narrative, and challenging, although the authorities and employers won't know this, the cult's agenda. Social media is a perfect vehicle for this, and really the only means to do it, and that's one of the reasons why the military intelligence networks invented it, and I exposed the very clear and obvious fact that that they did and how it was done in the pay-per-view book, pay-per-view in print, available soon, and I detail many of the connections between Silicon Valley and the military intelligence network. Social media and Silicon Valley in general, and the military intelligence networks it was created by, are both owned by the cult. So you can see the connections necessary to achieve this very agenda, because the cult's agenda is to destroy freedom of speech, so only the official narrative ever gets heard or seen. And this is why social media, along with historic levels of surveillance, is also engaging in historic levels of censorship, for which, again, there was no real means to achieve on such a scale before social media. These are the context and connections you don't get in the mainstream media. You just get the article I've just read out, and that's it. And that's why I do pay-per-view. In the article, it quotes Mr. Miller, former police officer standing up for freedom of speech in this story, saying that we've never lived in an Orwellian society. We're living in one and have been for a long, long time. People, especially those in law enforcement or authority or official positions, tend to take the official line that we live in a free democratic country as evidence that we do in fact live in a free democratic country when they've only got to look around and see that we don't. It's not a question of whether we do or we don't to anyone with eyes to see and minds willing to be informed, but how deeply are we going to go into it before the point where it starts to become so obvious that people in official positions do then start to point out that to do this or that in society would mean living in a totalitarian society, when by that point we already had been for so long. It's just that it's the first time they've noticed it. The real idea behind hate crime laws, although most people involved in administering it into law and enforcing those laws won't know, is to target and censor anyone and anything challenging the official narrative, because the official narrative must be circulated and accepted for the cult's agenda to succeed. Anything challenging it, like open, reasoned, informed debate, is risking the credibility of the official narrative, and that's why it's targeted with hate laws. That's why we need to stand up and speak out no matter what the intimidation, because the, the alternative is not doing so and the cult's agenda being achieved. So that's it for this week. That's the news. That's the context and connections. That's pay-per-view. More to come next week. Until then, goodbye.